And such love leads us to strive to be like God. Now consider for a moment what God is like. In Acts chapter 10, verse 34 and 35, we're told that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Paul twice wrote that God shows no partiality in Romans chapter 2 and verse 11, as well as Galatians chapter 2 and verse 6. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45 that God makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And that's an indicator that God is impartial in nature. So a failure to be impartial is ultimately a failure to be like God because God is impartial, because God shows no favoritism, because God is not prejudiced. But not only do we have the greatest command tell us to love God with our entire being, which assumes we're going to pursue God-likeness, we're also instructed to love our neighbors as ourselves, which implies active, intentional goodness toward one another. In other words, it, it, it assumes that you're going to seek to do good to your neighbor. Paul understood this, so after he referenced loving one another as the fulfillment of the law in Romans chapter 13, and verse 8, he then followed that up with the instruction or with the statement that love does no wrong to a neighbor in Romans chapter 13 and verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. I think that's really what James was trying to get to in James chapter 2 when he, when he uh, condemned, being, uh, condemned favoritism and condemned partiality. Look at the scenario James posited there in James chapter 2 between verses 2 and 4. He said, If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? In verse 6, he would, he would add that in showing such favoritism, one is dishonoring the one who has not shown favoritism. In this scenario, James indicates that wrong is done to the poor man by the actions and attitudes of those showing partiality to the rich man. Because in so doing, they have unrighteously judged and dishonored the poor man. If love does no wrong to a neighbor, and showing favoritism dishonors a neighbor, then quite obviously such partiality is a sin that must be eliminated from the Christian's repertoire of conduct. There's no place for prejudice, for bias, for favoritism or partiality among the people of God. And we understand that, logically. I imagine that for most of you in this audience today, that that part of the lesson, that half of the lesson, okay, maybe it's not quite half, half of the lesson or, or, or the first 15 minutes of the 50-minute sermon I'm about to give, I'm just kidding. That portion of this lesson, you're like, I got that. I understand that. That, that is logical to me. I get it. But yet we're so capable of practicing prejudice without realizing we're practicing it. So I want you to consider how prejudice manifests itself as a blindfold in the family of God. And there's three ways that we're going to talk about this morning. 
First, we are blindfolded by prejudice when we are selective with our service. I should have been more selective with my colors. We are blindfolded by prejudice when we are selective with our service. There's a few incidences that happen in the ministry of Jesus with his disciples that I want you to reflect on for just a moment. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus spends an exhaustive day teaching a crowd of more than 5,000 people. And at the end of that day, his disciples approach him and they say, Matthew chapter 14, verse 15, send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. In this scenario, the disciples didn't want to serve the massive crowd because they felt like that was going to be too difficult. In their minds, they looked at who needed to be served, and they're like, that's too much, that's too hard. Nope, let's just send them away and let them fend for themselves. What was Jesus' response? Jesus responds to them and says, they need not go away, you give them something to eat. And the disciples then went out, searched to see what kind of food supplies they had. They found, what did they find? You know, five loaves, two fish. Well, yeah, five loaves and two fish. Now, when we say loaves, we're not talking about loaves of bread like you get at Walmart. We're talking about a little tortilla, more likely. Pita, maybe. And then Jesus proceeded to take that small amount of provisions and turn it into a buffet that's unprecedented. So while the disciples wanted nothing to do with serving because it was too difficult in their mind, Jesus served. Go one chapter over, Matthew chapter 15. Jesus has traveled outside of Canaan. He's in the region of Tyre and Sidon, an area, uh, towns that are not favored, that are not looked upon with any sort of respect from the Jews. And while he's there, a Canaanite woman, not a Jewish woman, a Canaanite woman, approached Jesus with her demon-possessed daughter and begged him to heal her. And we're told that the disciples, once again, Matthew chapter 15 and verse 23, that they begged Jesus to send her away, for she is crying out after us. The disciples didn't want to serve this individual because they concluded that she wasn't deserving. She was not a Jew. Even Jesus will say in his conversation with her that, that he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel first and foremost. But after conversing with her, after she said, yes, but all I'm asking for is a crumb. What does Jesus do? He serves her. So while the disciples viewed her as undeserving, Jesus viewed her as completely deserving because of her great faith, he would say. Now, if you skip ahead to Matthew chapter 19, you have another situation. In verse 13 and 14, you have some parents that want to bring their children to Jesus. They want him to bless the children and pray over the children. And I'm certain if Jesus walked in here today, we'd want the same thing for our kids. But what, can you guess what the disciples or how the disciples responded to this desire of the parents? Matthew chapter 19, verse 13, the children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked those parents for bringing children to Jesus. The disciples didn't want to serve these children because they had concluded in their minds that that was too demeaning, that Jesus deserved better, that Jesus didn't have time to waste on kids. But what does Jesus say? 
Once again, just like with the Canaanite woman, just like with the crowd of 5,000 plus, Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. Jesus served. Here's the lesson to be learned from these episodes. The lesson is that it is not our job to pick and choose who deserves to be served. It is our job simply to serve. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a parable in which Jesus deliberately depicted a relationship that was plagued by prejudice. When Jesus told the parable, he depicted a Samaritan who hated Jews just as much as Jews hated them, serving one of those individuals that he was taught to hate. When Jesus concluded that parable, he said, go and do likewise. Now, what was he instructing his disciples? What was he saying they should go and do? Since the parable was in response to a question about who qualifies as our neighbor, and since the parable illustrates that all men, even the ones we are taught to hate, qualify as a neighbor, we can conclude that Jesus was instructing us as his disciples to lovingly serve all men without prejudice. Another parable, the parable of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25, you have this final judgment depicted. And according to the parable of the Son of Man, which is a title Jesus applied to himself, the Son of Man gathered all the nations to appear before his glorious throne, and then he placed those who he identified as sheep on his right and invited them to enter the kingdom because they fed him when he was hungry, because they gave him something to drink when he was thirsty, because they invited him in when he was a stranger, because they clothed him when he was naked, and because they took care of him when he was sick, and they visited him when he was in prison. But, but if you pay attention to the parable, those sheep didn't even realize when they had done those things for him. The sheep were simply serving without discrimination, without prejudice. And in the process, they were unwittingly serving the Lord. From these two parables, we conclude that Jesus never gave us parameters on who deserves to be served because he simply wants us to serve everyone without prejudice. That's what Jesus did. He served that crowd of 5,000 plus despite the fact that most of them would not become disciples. He served that Canaanite woman despite the fact that she was not numbered among the people to whom he was specifically sent. He served those children despite the fact that they may not remember their interaction with him. And it was his disciples who didn't want to serve. We must not forget that Jesus came not to be served but to serve. And so should we. We should not be selective with our service. We should not ever look at somebody and, and diagnose them and, and, and say, hey, that person doesn't deserve my help. That person doesn't deserve my love. That person doesn't deserve my attention. That should never be the case for Christians, but yet it happens all too often. We see somebody begging for help. And we conclude automatically, oh, he's just going to use that money for drugs. We know somebody that routinely asks for assistance, and, and, and we just conclude that their financial assistance is requested because they don't know how to handle their finances. But does that mean we shouldn't help? See, we can be prejudiced even when it comes to the way we serve other people. 
Does that make it right even if we are right in our assessment of the individual? Would Jesus serve them regardless of such conclusions? See, we can be blindfolded by prejudice when we are selective with our service. But we can also be blindfolded by prejudice when we are picky about who we pursue. Turn to John chapter 4 with me. I want you to pay attention to a situation that happens in the, in the life of Jesus as well. We're told in John chapter 4 and verse 4 that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now that's not exactly true. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. He could have gone around Samaria like most Jews. Most Jews traveling between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north with Samaria in the middle. Most Jews would go around. They would leave Galilee, go around on the eastern side of the Jordan River and travel down that side of the Jordan River to then cross into Judea. It's a 50-mile trek out of the way, but they did it because they didn't want to step into Samaritan land. They despised Samaritans so much that they didn't even want to walk through their town. It's like me when I dodged Tuscaloosa. I, had to, I, haven't, I haven't picked on Ben in a while. Plus, Arkansas beat Alabama in basketball last night, so it's fun. They did not want to enter Samaritan territory in any way, shape, or form. They had a prejudice. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. Do you know why he had, had to go through Samaria? It's because there were souls in Samaria. And so he arrives there, and he sends his disciples into town to, to get some food, to get some supplies, and he himself stays sitting out there by a well. He interacts with this woman, this Samaritan woman who comes, and, and he talks to her. And through that conversation, he reveals himself to be the Son of God, to be the Savior. You know what she does when she re realizes that? She runs into town. And she starts telling every one of the people in town about this man she just met who knew her whole life. And she invites them to come meet him. And they come and meet him, and many are converted. But in that same town were the disciples. And while they're gathering some food for Jesus to eat, you know what they didn't do? They didn't tell a single soul about Jesus. They didn't invite a single person to come out to that well. There are souls needing saved in Samaria, but they have decided in some way, shape, or form that those souls aren't deserving of the salvation that Jesus offers. It took the Samaritan woman to pursue the people in that town to bring them to Christ. And look at what Jesus told his disciples in verse 31 through 35. They were urging him to eat. And he said, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. He's telling them they don't see the opportunity to pursue lost souls. Their prejudice has blinded them to the fact that there were souls in that town that they didn't even speak to, that they didn't even invite. We must not forget that our assignment is to go 
into all the world. Jesus died for all the world. God loves all the world. And he sends us to share that good news and to pursue those souls. And so we can not only be blindfolded by, by being selective with who we serve, but we can be blindfolded by being picky about who we pursue. Have you ever just decided that you don't need to talk to somebody about Christ? Have you ever just looked at a scenario or an individual or some situation and said, no, nope, this isn't the right time. This isn't the opportunity. This isn't somebody I need to talk to. Have you ever just assumed that somebody knows Christ already and therefore never initiated a conversation? So we can be picky about who we pursue. And yet you look at Jesus and there was not a single person that he wasn't willing to pursue nor a single person he wasn't willing to die for. If he's not going to be picky, then neither should we. But our prejudice shows up when we are. You know what our prejudice also shows up? When we are finicky with who we fellowship. I had fun picking out words for this. Finicky. We don't get to use that word enough. There's a situation in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul is... I'm sorry, Peter is visiting the church in Antioch where Paul is. Now, the church in Antioch is a a very esteemed congregation at this point in history. They are the launching point for all of Paul's missionary journeys. They have, because of that, they have become a very multi-ethnic congregation because if you recall, Paul's missionary journeys took him into a lot of Gentile territory and he converted a lot of Gentiles into Christians. And now Antioch is this place where there is this, this... unique multicultural audience present. Paul shows up there and he's visiting this congregation. I mean, Peter shows up there and he's visiting this congregation. And upon arrival, he's dining with, he's fellowshipping with the Gentile Christians. But then in Galatians chapter 2, we're told that some men from James, that's a reference to the fact that some individual Jews who came from Jerusalem where James was the leader of the church, They came up to visit Antioch as well. And when they arrived, when these Jewish Christians arrived from Jerusalem, all of a sudden, Peter stops dining with the Gentile Christians and exclusively dines with the Jewish Christians. And Paul had to call him out for that. See, what happened here is that Peter got finicky with fellowship. He was picking and choosing who he would spend time with based on who was present, based on his prejudice, based on his concerns about what the Jewish Christians would say if they saw him dining with Gentile Christians. Peter stopped fellowshipping with the Gentile group when a Jewish group showed up. That's what it comes down to. Do you ever find yourself being choosy? about who you're going to spend time with as a brother and sister in Christ? Are there certain people that you don't socialize with as much, that you don't fellowship with as much because they're different than you? It could be their ethnicity, or, or it could be their age, or, or it could be their political views, 
or it could be their occupation. So many factors could come into play. But do you intentionally not fellowship with somebody because of some external factor like that? We're a congregation of a decent size. Our roster, there are 700 individuals. It's hard to get to know all 700. Admittedly. I mean, there, there are still brothers and sisters in this congregation that, that I have had very little contact with, and that's on me. It can be very hard in a congregation of this size to really fellowship with everybody. The question isn't about practicality. The question is about prejudice. Do you intentionally not fellowship with certain people because of some sort of external factor? When you think about what Jesus said would prove that we are his disciples, what was it? Love. Todd read a moment ago, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus identified love between brothers and sisters in Christ as the evidence of our relationship with him. As a result, one of the greatest threats to demonstrating our association with Christ is any prejudice that prevents such love from being present. And do you remember what Jesus said would prove his deity? This is in John 17. During his prayer, just minutes before his arrest, and he prayed that they may all be one. A reference to his current and future disciples, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus indicated that his deity is evidenced by our unity. As a result, one of the greatest threats to evidencing Christ's deity to the world is any prejudice that prevents fellowship between believers. So we must rid ourselves of any prejudice that prevents fellowship. We must not be a family that's divided on any external grounds, but a family that truly embraces the fact that we're members of one another, that we build each other up, that we are one in the Lord. And if you're finicky with your fellowship, that's impossible. heard a story about Gandhi, one of the most well-known and well-revered uh, practicers of the, the Hindu religion. But according to his biography, apparently, when he was a student, he read the Gospels and decided he wanted to check out this Christian, Christianity thing because he thought maybe Christianity held the answer to the problem of the caste system that was practiced in his country. So one Sunday, he went to visit a, a Christian church. But upon arrival, he entered the building, and an usher was there who told him he should go worship elsewhere. 
And Gandhi apparently said this, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. See, that usher's prejudice not only betrayed Jesus, but it also turned a person away from trusting him as his Savior. I'm not speaking ill of Gandhi here. I'm not revering Gandhi here. I'm just trying to show that we are quite capable of prejudice, even in the Lord's body. And if we want to be like the Lord, we have to eliminate it because prejudice is unchristlike, even in the forms that we've talked about today. As you reflect on yourself today, do you see within yourself a prejudice that you've never really paid attention to, that you ignored because you just assumed it wasn't prejudice on the lines of some sort of physical persecution of people? Is it possible that you are guilty of some degree of prejudice towards people because of some external factor that those people cannot control? Do you demonstrate the love that God has for all people, the love that sent Christ to the cross for all people. Are you an image bearer of that? Because if not, then maybe your life needs to change in a drastic way. And that's what we invite you to do today. Maybe you need to become a child of God because you recognize that God does love everyone, that Christ did die for everyone, that you have sinned just like every other Adult. And you need the salvation that's only available through the blood of Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to change so that you can be like Christ. Whatever your need is today, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.
looking message this morning for all Christians to observe themselves. And it's a prayer that we all do that as we live for God. Our closing hymn would be hymn 824. I'll fly away if you done so. Please sign a tennis card, balloons for our members, gentlemen for our, our visitors. Pass those to the center aisles, and they'll be gathered as we sing our closing hymn. I'll fly away. Sing all four, all three stanzas. <coughs> Some glad morning when this life is o'er, I'll fly away to a home on God's celestial shore. I'll fly away. Oh, oh, oh.